Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined via Google Hangout by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, it's been a garbage week, and that is saying something in this landscape. How are you holding up? Oh, it has indeed been a a fairly heinous week. <sighs> Uh, you know, before we get into this week's headlines, we want to dedicate this episode to our beloved colleagues who were impacted this week and give a special shout out to a few beloved members of the TV's top five and OG friends of the five, including Shannon O'Connor, who was a big champion of the podcast and was responsible for some of the amazing things that you saw on social um, around the, the show. So we love you guys and we miss you. Please hire them. Yep, I said it on on Twitter, and I'll say it again here. Uh, we lost some wonderful journalists, uh, social media mavens, people with a wide assortment of skills. If you are looking for somebody with these particular sets of skills, I am more than happy to give a recommendation for about a dozen people, and I am sure Leslie is happy Ditto. to do the same. same. So, so reach out to us. We know some good people who are happy and eager to get back to work. Yeah, that's that's an understatement. And uh, we're sending love, you know, uh, just because we're not naming names here. We want to be respectful of people's privacy. You know, Shannon has tweeted an, an amazing thread. And um, yeah, reach out. You know, a lot of, of people who were affected who we're not going to name here out of uh, re respect to their privacy. So uh, if you need people of any caliber, reach out to Dan and I will happy be happy to make a recommendation. And there's no good way to make a transition to headlines, but there really guess, isn't, Dan. But I guess we have to because that is what we do. Up first in overall deal news. Max Borenstein, the showrunner behind HBO's untitled Lakers drama, which is no longer called Showtime, thankfully, thankfully. has signed a two-year pact with the premium cable network. And Better Call Saul star Bob Odenkirk has signed a first-look deal with the show's studio, Sony TV. A reminder that the Better Call Saul season finale is coming up on Monday, and it is terrific, capping off a really wonderful season of television. Um, there will be lots of coverage of that from me and Mr. Josh Wiggler on Monday. And comic book publisher Boom Studios has signed a first-look deal with Netflix, joining fellow comic book companies Dark Horse and Millar World at the streamer. Elsewhere, American Idol will, will forge ahead with its current season with remote episodes featuring performances from contestants at home. Elsewhere at ABC, the network has moved up its summer premiere dates for a lot of its retro game shows to help fill the programming holes on its schedule. 
I am personally very interested in seeing what American Idol looks like in this strange incarnation. Anyway, in other coronavirus-impacted programming, Fox's Empire will end its final season abruptly on April 21st as co-creators Lee Daniels and Danny Strong are optimistic the proper series finale will be produced at some point. And, you know, yes, they're, you know, in addition to their optimism that they will eventually be able to to film that episode and they lost, I think it was two from its final season. Um, there are you know rumors of a possible spinoff featuring the character Cookie, that's Taraji P. Henson's character. Those rumors have kind of been heating up in, in the last couple of, of uh, months and Fox seems receptive, as do the Empire creators. So I wouldn't be too surprised to hear more from that world soon. Very strange. I would describe a Empire spinoff starring Taraji P. Henson's character as just being Empire. But whatever. What do I know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I may know a little more than that, but I can't say say too much now. But uh, <laughs> yes. Um, well, in keeping with other coronavirus impacted programming, the Friends reunion special, as we previously discussed on the show, it will no longer be able to be produced before HBO Max launches in May. So, yeah. I don't know how to transition to that, you know, um, and, you know, wrapping up headlines and other broadcast news, Fox has renewed flagship series 911 and its spinoff Lone Star and CBS has canceled God Friended Me after two seasons. Rest in peace. Yes. Um, And with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, we're pleased to welcome Audrey Morrissey to the show. Audrey is a veteran of the unscripted space, having worked on NBC's The Voice and Songland, and was previously an exec producer on the 2011 Emmys. She is currently hard at work producing One World, Together at Home, the fundraiser that is set to air April 18th across a global audience and on U.S. broadcasters NBC, ABC, and CBS. Audrey, thank you so much for taking a few minutes out to join us at what I'm sure is such a busy time. Thank you so much. I'm really, really happy to be here speaking with you all. You know, let's get started. You know, how did this all come together? Um, What I heard on my end is that NBC's New York-based exec VP specials, Doug Vaughn, led the charge for this. But tell us about how how the whole thing came together, because this is a massive, massive undertaking. Yes, yes, it sure is. And um, thank God, I don't think I quite realized how massive it is, just one foot in front of the other. But yes. Doug Vaughn called me. He called me up and said, hey, we have this special, um, Global Citizen, the WHO and Lady Gaga are involved and we'd like you to join us and help, you know, mount this massive show. And, you know, how can you say no? But, you know, the the way this show came together is that Chris Martin and Global Citizen started these concerts these from your living room concert series and they were doing it. And I think from there, that idea grew to be a bigger thought for global citizen. And at the same time, they were very much aligned with the world health organization. And we're talking about doing something and talking about their fund being the recipient of uh, funds, raising funds and how they could work together And then at the same time, Lady Gaga was involved with the World Health Organization. So really all the planets aligned for those three entities, Lady Gaga, the World Health Organization, along with the UN and Global Citizen to put this together. And it just kind of was birthed and expanded from then. And that all was happening. I mean, that was all happening. Global Citizen was 
reaching out to many artists to kind of put this together. They went to Doug, Doug jumped on it immediately. And then I got the call and I roped in all my trusted compadres and all of this. And <laughs> here we are, you know, it's really been fast and furious. And then the other networks came on board and everybody's been absolutely terrific. And all the artists, you know, everybody just wants to help, right? They, everybody wants to do their part. And it's, it's really been incredible to see how, um, all the artists and talent have come together and been so creative in how they have, um, how they've delivered their, either their speaking parts or their performances in record time, I might add. I'm kind of intrigued by the number of different large entities that are involved, because I have to assume that every single one of them has a different, if not agenda, a different thing that they need to make sure comes out of this. So how have you been balancing all of the different entities that are involved here. And that's before you get to all of the A-list stars with their particular agendas. You know, I, the, the truth is, I think it actually might be easier than you might think. And I think it really goes <laughs> to the nature of what we're all dealing with right now. You know, never before has something really hit the entire globe at the same time in such a marked way. And Everybody is very clear that first responders and frontline healthcare workers and healthcare workers everywhere are our heroes. I mean, they are keeping us afloat, and everybody wants to make sure that they are recognized and they can do all that they can to help give them resources. So that's been, you know, the North Star, and everybody gets that. I think. I think they all really recognize this thing is just bigger than anything, any one thing. And so by that, you know, by that respect, it's actually been, I think, easier than you might think. The show really has shaped up to be just, I don't even want to say a, a love letter to healthcare workers, but, but it's really about shining a light on what is going on. Um, putting a face and humanizing these frontline healthcare workers and, and teachers and everybody, like everybody involved that's out there helping, this is shining a big light on it. So the show doesn't have a lot of facts and figures. It's very story-based. And there are health experts, there are speakers, there are um, performances, there are news packages that are focused not just on the U.S., but globally. And that's a big theme. I think if there's one thing people want viewers to walk away with is this idea that there is no isolationism with this. You have to be concerned about the healthcare system around the globe because that directly affects you here. It's all interconnected. So that's a big theme in the show. You've got, you know, as Dan mentioned, so many people coming together for this, including experts as well as entertainers. But the challenges of, of producing a special like this in a normal situation would be great. And now you're laying layering in the fact that everyone is coming and doing this from their homes. What sort of challenges does that present for, for you from a producing standpoint? 
You know, the biggest challenge is time. It's timing the show. It's the, and it's the time to get it done. Once you get aligned on what the show is and what the pieces will be and the tone and kind of go back and forth on scripts and the material. And then you basically are a support, your support for them because they're all doing it on their own. So you are there to, you know, be as, do as much heavy lifting or light lifting as they need, helping them through it. And then you're getting the pieces delivered. But the truth is, you don't really know how long each piece will be until you get it. You, <laughs> you talk about a time, but until you really get it, you don't know. And that's the biggest challenge because we've got to bring the show to time. We only have two hours. And that's, you, it's, it would be much, my point is, it would be much easier to do this live, live. Because if something comes in long, you drop a piece. But here, they're all coming in together, and it's a little hairy. Can you tell I'm right in the middle of bringing the show to time, getting the last <laughs> few pieces, and I'm kind of a little bit white-knuckling it, begging to see if there's more time from the networks, you know, doing hopefully very respectful and smart edits and just trying to figure it out. That is the toughest part. You mentioned tone and how important that is in something like this. So it, it sounds as if the attempt is going to be to have a fair amount of uplift, obviously, and a fair amount of emotional resonance. What is the role that humor is going to be playing since you have Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon and mm -hmm. Stephen Colbert hosting? Yeah, we've talked a lot about that. And, you know, we've been working on this show for about two and a half weeks maybe a little closer to three, but, you know, every day the news would change. I mean, just even think about what it's like today from three weeks ago. And we were spending a lot of time projecting what will the mood of the country and the world be on April 18th? Like, what will it be and what's appropriate? And how do you strike the right tone of a show that is not all doom and gloom, but it is sensitive to the moment and it's factual and it's uplifting and, you know, but it's also a moment to be mournful. It's also, you know, it's a very sobering moment for everybody in so many different ways. So we've spent a lot of time considering it and our sort of, uh, our themes that we're using are hope, unity, and kindness. And those have been our filters through which we've been running everything. And the good news is everybody gets it. They're really pleased with all the components of the show. I think we're really thankful for our hosts because they really get it. And they're going to bring the right amount of levity and delivered in a, a, a kind, gentle way throughout the night. The other thing we realized, and we're very grateful to have as part of the show, we have a few um, segments aimed at children, kids, and we have some animations. We have an animation from SpongeBob. We have two pieces from Sesame Street. I mean, we have the Grouch talking about social distancing, and it's hilarious. <laughs> so we realized, you know, who can 
you know, bring a laugh and a smile puppets, they can do that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, a lot of attention and, you know, hopefully we will, we will strike the right balance. You know, wrapping up here, obviously your mission here is to not only educate, but also entertain, but there's also a fundraising component here, yet this is not a traditional telethon. Um, can you walk us through just how you anticipate that working? Well, that's absolutely correct. It is not a telethon. Um, there will be no calls to action to pledge money. Rather, the show throughout the night will announce big corporate donations and philanthropist donations going directly to the WHO and the UN and their fund. So that's really what we're doing. There will also be calls to action to act just to see how you can get involved, but no money. I mean, everybody realizes this is a time when many people are hurting financially directly because of this cause. So that's, that's how it will be handled in the show. Thank you so much, Audrey, for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time out during this, such a crazy time for you. Thank you for having me on. I'm really pleased to talk to you, and I hope we put on a good show for people on Saturday. Number two. Up second. Leslie already told you that that Friends reunion that we've been talking about now for weeks and months will not, in fact, be part of the original launch programming at HBO Max, and neither will the story that we're about to mention – but it is still a story about things actually moving forward in exciting directions at HBO Max, as on Thursday, the streamer announced that it would be picking up three new series from Bad Robot, that being, of course, J.J. Abrams' production banner. Leslie, fill us in on these intriguing-sounding stories. Yes, last year, J.J. Abrams and Bad Robot signed what, what sources say is probably about a $250 million overall deal extension with Warners. That means it brought his film and TV productions under the same roof for the first time. And these are the first three shows that he is doing for HBO Max. He, of course, already has three shows in the works at Apple TV Plus under the deal, which is helpful for Warners as a studio. But now this is creating some musty content for HBO Max at a time when they, you know, look, without the Friends reunion, they're definitely going to need some kind of big flashy thing. And obviously these th these shows were just announced now. They're being written right now. And, you know, they are obviously not going to be available at launch. No, nothing can be produced. Nothing's even cast yet. But let's take a look at the three shows. The first series is Duster, which is being co-written by J.J. Abrams and LaToya Morgan. Morgan, of course, is a veteran. She's currently on um, The Walking Dead and Into the Badlands and worked on Turn, Washington Spies and Parenthood and Shameless and is just an all around amazing human being. That is set in the 1970s in the Southwest and revolves around the life of a gutsy gateway driver for a growing crime syndicate that goes from awful to wildly, stupidly, dangerously awful. There's a lot more other stuff that is in the works, too. The second series is probably the biggest of the three, at least if you ask me, and that's called Overlook. It's a horror thriller series inspired by and featuring iconic characters from Stephen King's The Shining. Overlook explores the untold, terrifying stories of the most famous haunted hotel in American fiction, and the project reunites Bad Robot with Stephen King, who previously collaborated on Hulu's Castle Rock, which is, of course, an anthology series that has explored a couple of different stories from his repertoire. And the third series, there's not a lot of details here, but this one is, is a big one, too. It's, it is based on DC characters in the Justice League Dark Universe. There are no details about who's writing that or which characters will, will be featured. But make no mistake, three J.J. Abrams shows coming to HBO Max, that is a huge deal. 
It's also particularly interesting, the one that he's going to be co-writing, because for the most part, he's been so busy with so many other different things in his career that he hasn't been writing and directing his various TV shows that he's been producing. So, so yeah, it's a big, big return on their investment. Um, and, you know, in a larger sense, it comes as HBO Max has yet to announce their official launch date. We've heard it's May when I would imagine, I think it's late May. I don't know. There's, we, we don't have a date. We don't really know exactly what they're launching with other than the entire library of friends and big bang theory, which I mean, that's not to undersell. That's those are two huge franchises and will obviously make a lot of waves upon launch and probably come at a time when much of the, of the, the globe is still under uh, under quarantine. So definitely the world has been looking for friends. Yeah. So to speak. Yeah. Well, Dan, let's uh, let's go to our next uh, segment. And this one, my friend, is, you are going to have a field day with. I have a feeling. Number three. Up third, Fox has picked up a long gestating reality show called Labor of Love. The unscripted dating show revolves around a former Bachelor contestant, naturally, who is ready to start a family. She's introduced to 15 like-minded men who go through a series of challenges to showcase both their paternal and relationship skills, while also, Dan, possibly starting a romance with her. And naturally, it's hosted by former Sex in the City star Kristen Davis. I'm struggling to kind of get through the, the concept without giggling here because, you know, this podcast is apparently a range of emotions for me. But, um, you know, of these reality concepts that we've written about over time, the first one that comes to mind is Fox's Who Wants to Marry a Multimillionaire, which easily has to be one of the most awful unscripted shows that, that come to mind. But uh, Dan... You know, you have a penchant for loving some of this stuff or not loving the content, but at least loving talking about it. Um, I'm going to mention Hater because I'm guessing you will. But like, let's just talk about trash TV for a second. You know, is there anything else that was just complete crap that comes to mind when you think of this? Or what do you think? Uh, first of all, what do you think of this format? And then what comes to mind for you? Well, I mean, I'm going to focus specifically on Fox. There's there's no reason to open the door to the entire world, because once we open the door to the entire world, then we're talking about Hater. We're talking about Farmer Wants a Wife. We're talking about all manner of things. Uh, you know, look, it's not like Fox is doing anything wrong here. They're just trying to fill space the same as everyone else. So they also announced a premiere date uh or at least sent out screeners for ultimate tag. You know, Fox is trying to keep the lights on. And this show in particular, it, it really does feel like a throwback to the glory years of Mike Darnell as Fox's alternative programming guru. And if you go through the list of some of those Fox programs, both in the specific period of between like 1998 and 2006, but also a few things later, there there are just some real eyebrow raisers. And of course, many listeners will remember almost all of these vividly, and some people will not. And in some cases, they're shows that never aired. I, for example, will always be intrigued by Our Little Genius, which was supposed to be hosted by uh, Kevin Pollack, and they shot a full season of episodes, and then none of it aired because there were apparently multiple violations of ethical concerns uh, related to the competition. So that was a that was basically a trivia show involving children, and something went horribly wrong. And I'm kind of amused to find out because, for heaven's sakes, 
CBS aired a reality show where a kid drank bleach. So how much worse could it be than that? Wait, what show was that? Kid Nation. Come on. I don't remember Uh, if they actually drank bleach or if they were about to drink bleach. I think they probably didn't actually drink the bleach because let's be real, for all of the concerns about Kid Nation, it was a pretty good show and the kids were really in very little jeopardy at all. And the phrase, we're really in very little jeopardy. Probably, uh, you know, probably when you're putting kids in eh, some jeopardy, not such a great idea for a TV show. I still think that uh, Kid Nation, fine show. So anyway, yes, uh, mentioned mentioned our little genius. Of course, though, the list goes on to a wide variety of things like Mr. Personality. If you tell someone right now that there was a show in which uh, women dated men wearing masks and that Monica Lewinsky was the host of it, it really sounds like something that somebody made up. I swear this was a thing that existed. Um, I also swear that there was a show called The Littlest Groom that was about a uh, a dwarf bachelor looking for love and that there actually was some dispute in the community as to whether it was a progressive show or not. I'm not going to make that determination. There was a little show called Playing It Straight in which a woman was on a ranch and had to guess which of her suitors were straight and which of them were gay. I don't know that I know the actual answers because it only aired three episodes, I believe. Let's see. So Fox, of course, did Temptation Island that was designed as a show that was a tawdry version of Survivor. And then they did Paradise Hotel that was a tawdry version of uh, Temptation Island. And then they did Forever Eden, which was a tawdrier version of Paradise Hotel. Uh, Forever Eden never finished airing its episodes on Fox. I believe they did air on some random offshoot reality channel, but I still like to make the joke that the entire cast of Forever Eden is still out in the jungle somewhere and that they have over the ensuing 15 years created some sort of super strain of herpes that uh, that no one else in the world would be able to prevent, but that they're all living with. So those are all some great shows. Now so, I am a, so, <laughs> so where so where I, I I'm I'm reluctant to stop you here, but where does labor of love fit in with all of these for you, Dan? At least based on the premise, not based on yeah, of course the, the episodes haven't launched yet. There's eight of them coming, and they start May 21st on Fox. There's there's your plug, but where where does the show rate? So uh, who who knows? The answer is that Fox has always wanted to find these sort of sticky reality concepts, these concepts where somewhere Paul Lee is calling you and saying, thank (laughs) you for using the word sticky, tasty, salty, delicious. Anyway. Yeah. So and, and the thing is, some of them have worked and most of them, I would say, in the balance probably have not. But all you need is for a couple to work on a big level, given how little they cost. So all you want to do is come up with a reality concept so ludicrous that people are going to be talking about it like this. And of our listeners, if five percent say, hmm, that sounds just horrible enough to work, then that's where we go. And, you know, the ones that work are reasonably fun. I insist that the time is probably right for a new Joe Millionaire. They tried rushing the second season of Joe Millionaire much too quickly, and there was no way to do the premise correctly. And so they went across the pond to Europe and it was it was ludicrous and it just didn't work. I'm telling you, there is a whole generation of young female Bachelor contestants who have no memory at all that Joe Millionaire ever existed and would be totally able to be fooled by this. And uh, 
valet uh, Paul Hogan is totally available and would totally be on that show if they brought back Joe Millionaire. Now, of course, no one's actually bringing back any show in which people kiss because no one can make physical contact for the foreseeable future. But someday, I think it will be time for another Joe Millionaire. Darn it. Yeah. Well, Dan, I eagerly await your review of Labor of Love ahead of its May 21st debut on Fox. I so. hope nobody makes me review Labor of Love before it <laughs> premiere on Fox. Well, I anticipate that you will talk about it on this show then. I and I and I long for that day. Number four. Up next, it's our showrunner spotlight segment. Our guest this week is the new showrunner of BBC America's Killing Eve, following in the footsteps of Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Emerald Fennel. Prior to Killing Eve, which premiered its third season last weekend, Suzanne Heathcote's TV credits included AMC's Fear the Walking Dead and Apple TV Plus's C. Welcome to the podcast, Suzanne. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no, my pleasure. So... You're in this extremely odd situation. Well, we're all in this extremely odd situation, obviously, but you're joining us via Google Hangouts right now. What has it been like trying to do this whole promotional gauntlet in this very strange moment that we're in? <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's so odd. I mean, it's it's an odd time for all of us, you know. It's just very crazy, and I feel like puts so much into perspective, actually. It's nuts. No one imagined this was going to be the world when we thought the show was going to come out. And what I really hope for and, and can't hope for anymore is, is just that it brings some entertainment and relief for people who need it right now. Um, but, yeah, it, it's it's been kind of crazy. You know, post-production have been working remotely and it, it's 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 been a crazy time. We're very fortunate that we wrapped filming. Um, and I, I feel for those productions where they've had to stop, you know, midway through a season or a couple of episodes from the end. So I, I'm just grateful that we were able to air. Um, that would have been a really tough situation to be in otherwise. You know, moving into the show a little bit more, you know, this is your first year as showrunner. Killing Eve has this really fun and almost um, empowering tradition now of changing showrunners every year and they call it passing the baton. Can you talk a little bit about when you were approached during season two about taking uh, taking the reins for season three and and what the, the the handoff for season four might look like and maybe the advantages and and if there are disadvantages to that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it, it was really kind of amazing timing. I'd watched the show, you know, I live in LA and uh, being British, so many people were talking to me about the show and wanting my opinion on it. And I knew Phoebe of old. I'd, I'd written for her theatre company when I was a playwright in London many years ago. And uh, so I I knew her work. I'd seen Fleabag and, and I loved the show. I mean, it was so my wheelhouse and kind of, you know, like everyone just fell in love with it. And it was about two days after I'd binged the whole thing, I got a call from my manager right before Thanksgiving. And she was like, how would you feel about meeting for Killing Eve? And I was like, what? And it was it felt so out of the blue. And I was so excited. I remember being so nervous that first meeting because I just was such a fan of the show. And it's lovely when you're going in for a job and you're a genuine fan. And yeah, it was a, a series of meetings really that evolved from that. And, you know, I, I spoke with Phoebe again and Emerald actually. And that's definitely one of the advantages, particularly for me being the third person in. It's like there are two people who've had this very unique, specific experience and you can really talk to them about it. 
And this is a role, it's, it's a tough role on any show. And this show is so specific and kind of has captured the imagination of so many people and is loved by so many people. You know, there's, you know, there's tough challenges in that. And so to be able to have two women who are incredibly supportive and really give you good advice prior was invaluable. And Phoebe and I spoke a lot and she was always there if I wanted to talk to her about character stuff and the scripts and she was great. And actually, Laura, um, who's going to be doing season four, Laura Neal, she was a writer on season three. So she's sort of been in the thick of it for season three. She's seen, uh, she's seen a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. And we know each other very well now, having worked on season three together. So, yeah, we were speaking. We were just, like, messaging each other yesterday, actually. She was the last person I saw socially before the lockdown. We had a drink, and then we were like, yeah, isn't this stuff kind of crazy? And then literally, it was like two days later, like, no one was allowed to leave the houses. So, um, yeah, and she's in the thick of it now with season four. But I hope, I mean, she and Phoebe will talk, I know, but I, I hope I can just be as supportive to her as Emerald and Phoebe were to me because I know personally that was an invaluable resource. Well, I'm curious a little bit on the, the timetable of all of this. When you actually got that first call to meet with them, mm-hmm. uh, where, what was airing, what had actually aired, where were they in the, in the process at that moment? Uh, nothing of season two had aired. They'd shot almost all of it. They'd sort of pretty much finished shooting that season. So I, I initially read the script and then I watched a very rough cut. Um, but for the meetings, I just read the scripts of season two. And then I went in, I think it was like the second or third meeting I had with Sid Gentle, the production company and BBC America. And I went in and very broadly pitched what I would do for season three and some new characters that I would want to bring in and kind of just very loose ideas and it, it really went from there. But the show was airing while we were in the writer's room in London for season four. So it just started airing around the time we were in the writer's room. And and you get to the end of the second season and there's that very, very rather large cliffhanger at the end of mm-hmm. the season. Mm-hmm. What were the conversations about what you were actually allowed to do coming out of that cliffhanger? I mean, they were very good in as much as there was nothing I was told I couldn't do. You know, obviously, I knew Eve had to be alive. So <laughs> so that was, a you know, that was a big one. And, and really, we had to sit there and it was important for me that we, even though I didn't want like tons of expositional dialogue about how did Eve survive and sort of, you know, I really wanted us to move forward. For, for me and for the writers, we felt it was important that we really did map out how she got out of that scenario and kind of also emotionally what's happened to her in the six months since the end of season two, kind of to when we find them. And I, I, I wanted the time cut, you know, that was something I pitched because I just felt season one and two had happened in such a short period of time. You know, it's an immediate pickup, the beginning of season two. And actually, it's it's when you put those two seasons together, it's a very short time span, both those seasons. And I thought we really need a moment for our characters to kind of physically recover and take stock and for there to be some sort of consequences. You know, we, we just needed them to have a minute off screen for us to really come in and kind of start the story again. You know, you mentioned, obviously, there is the new showrunner lined up for season four. How involved will you be? You know, obviously, I think you, um, if memory serves, you have an overall deal with AMC, which is a sibling mm-hmm. uh, network to BBC America. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how how does that work? I mean, does it do you remain on as it is a, an exec producer and start writing other scripts for or do you go back to Fear the Walking Dead? I mean, <laughs> well, I don't know. I, how, how does that work? It's so it's so unique what you guys have have constructed there. 
I know. No, it's it's. I'll step back definitely for season four, and and that's as it should be. You know, really, it's Laura's now, and in the same way that sort of, even though. Emerald and Phoebe were there, should I ever want advice? You know, Phoebe was very clear. She was like, it's yours. I mean, and and she said, really, uh, she was there anytime I needed her, but she was never intrusive and never felt that she needed to tell me what to do and was very, very clear that I was to really make it my own. And I feel exactly the same for Laura. And I wouldn't want to be in the writer's room with Laura because I think it would be hard for anyone to have their predecessor there and feel that they can then make it their own, you know. So, no, I mean, if she... And and she knows, I mean, I, I've said it to her a lot and, and we've spoken a lot, if, if she ever wants any advice. But she's in contact with Phoebe as well and I think to have the person who really created the characters be your be a great artistic resource in that sense. And I'm... Any time Laura wants to run anything past me, of course I'm here but no I'll definitely be moving on to something else and with AMC I'm just at the moment we're you know there's there's a few projects that we're talking about at the moment but they won't be they won't be killing Eve I'll be doing something completely new which I'm excited about actually I mean I I love the show obviously and I've loved doing it but it's very intense and there is something about stepping away and kind of you know palette cleansing artistically and and creating my own characters and something from the ground up that's really exciting too yeah and and just you know before i'm i obviously cover development and i'm and i'm obsessed with showrunner changes as people who mm-hmm. listen to the show really know mm-hmm. but one of the things that i find so uplifting you know is the fact that this show it makes it a point to to hire female showrunners and you know the experience i mean this you're correct me if i'm wrong but you're a first time you were a first time showrunner with killing eve I mean, it's like you're learning how to do this trade on one of the best and most critically adored shows on television. Can you talk a little bit about that opportunity and being able to pass the baton and and do that for someone else? I mean, that's I mean, it just feels like one of the most empowering things that's happening in TV. And we're not talking about it enough. I totally agree. It's such a huge opportunity. And and all three of us, and, and Laura as well, I would say, you know, we're all, it's, for each of us, it's the first time doing this. So that in itself is enormous, that we've all been given this opportunity, the first time on, on an enormous show. And also what I love about it is that there's an enormous amount of support behind the scenes, genuine support from woman to woman. And we all want the next person to really succeed and we'll do anything we can to help them succeed. I couldn't have asked for Phoebe and Emerald to have been more supportive to me. And I definitely want to pay that back in kind to Laura. And I think that's really important, actually, because it is a rare opportunity for women to have. And I think really with kind of everything that's happened in the industry and kind of everything that's happened with the Me Too movement, it's it's about women supporting each other. I think that's the most one of the most important things. And uh, and that we've all got to help each other in this world. And so Sid Gentle and BBC America really giving this opportunity and and creating not one, but so far four opportunities for women uniquely in this way has been remarkable. And I, you know, has changed all our lives. So it's, you know, you can't express enough what a big deal it is actually. And I'll always be grateful for it. I mean, it's, it's yeah, it, always be eternally grateful. As you look to develop what's next, have you thought about maybe employing a similar strategy where you you as well give the same opportunities to, to other women in the industry? Or is it is this show specifically structured for that? Well, I, I you know... 
it's one of those things I, with development, as you know, it's about, initially, it's just like, you just want to see the thing get off the ground. Uh, so whatever I do next, obviously, I hope it would be something that's, you know, gets even close to being as successful as Killing Eve. It's so unique and kind of how it's captured the zeitgeist, I feel. But, uh, yeah, I mean, whatever I do, it's always very important to me that uh, women are supported and there's diversity and that opportunities are given to people who haven't previously been able to have them. I, I think it's essential. I've been very, very lucky in my career. You know, the first job I ever had was at HBO with... It was Kate Robin really went out on a limb to get me into the writer's room. You know, she, she kind of... She was only allowed to hire so many writers and she... You know, I had no experience in TV and she really pushed for me and I always remembered that and and held that up and sort of felt that that is something I'd always want to emulate that yeah to, to really push for people who wouldn't have necessarily had an opportunity before I think is essential and is what's creating great tv because we're just getting different voices and different perspectives now in a way that we haven't before You've mentioned the sort of opportunity and the leeway that uh, that Phoebe and Emerald gave you to make the voice of the show your own. Is there any way for you sort of in your own head to quantify how season three is your season, sort of what the voice is that you're bringing to it in particular? Yeah, it's I mean, it's so interesting because you have to take what you've been given. You know, it's not a clean slate. So obviously you have to honour what's happened before and then also make it your own while remaining true to the characters. It's, it's, a, it's a very specific tightrope you're walking. And, of course, you're aware of the fact that everyone loves this world and so you want to keep it beloved in the same way. That being said, you kind of have to keep all that in mind and then you kind of have to forget it all and just really go with your gut, I think. And and that was, you know, when I spoke to Laura and, and when we talk, it's about... And also what was said to me is just you've got to try and have as much fun with it as you can. But I felt, for me, this season, yeah, it was about consequence, actually. And it was about really going deeper emotionally with the characters. I think by a third season of a show, you've really earned kind of peeling some of the layers back and, and really understanding these people a little deeper. And also honouring what's happened. And, you know, a lot of enormous stuff has happened. It's, it's, there's no getting past it. You, I didn't feel I could be true to those characters and kind of gloss over the enormity of what's happened to them and their actions, you know, particularly Eve. I mean, she's, she has committed huge acts of violence and has also, you know, been victim to huge acts of violence. That is going to have an impact. I can't pretend that hasn't happened. I can't suddenly have her out you know, like having a whale of a time. And, you know, it's, it's, you, I just felt we really had to honour what's been and, and who these people are. So, you know, I'm a playwright originally, so it always comes back to character for me. So that was really what interested me. And actually what interested me from the beginning about the show, it was all about who these people are and their complications and their flaws is, is always what interests me. Seeing flawed women is that uh, really what excites me. And, and absolutely, you can tell certainly in the first episode that's already aired that Eve's trauma is something that the show is going to take very seriously. As you were writing, how hard was it to make sure that that was foregrounded and still then be a show that also has all of these fashion changes that everybody mm -hmm. loves and has all of these sort of wonderfully kind of almost silly moments as well? How do you make those actually still work in a show that's about how truly wounded and hurt this core character is? Well, I think that partly 
plays into what happens at the end of episode one. You know, you that was really like an electric shock that kind of jumps Eve out of that safety net she's created for herself in the time we haven't seen off screen. And also, you know, you're absolutely right. You've sort of got to keep that colour and that zest in it. But I was, I also felt, again, you know, it's, it's a fine line. You have to keep those moments of humour. You have to keep the humour and the fun in it, but you cannot inject them for the sake of it. Like, everything, you, you can't have a costume change just because you want a costume change. It has to come, or you can't have Jodie doing an accent just because you want a hero do Glaswegian. You know, it has to come because <laughs> the story requires it. Her character needs to do that for something. And... Um, and, and, you know, the actors felt the same way. You know, they, they wanted it to be a vital part of the story. So I think there's an inevitability that in a third season, you're going to see a different element of any show um, because consequences will have happened for any character in a third season of, of what we've seen before. They are different people to the people we've initially seen. But the glint in the eye, the kind of wink that the show has, which everyone loves so much, is always there. And I think that comes from that very specific... For me, actually, having always written American TV, this is the first British TV I've written, it's very British, that kind of very specific eccentric humour that comes from those very dark moments, that kind of gallows humour, which, having grown up in Britain, I'm very aware of. And, and it's, you know, it's something that I love about the country and the culture. Uh, so it's, it's that that you really embed it in. And we would make ourselves laugh in the writer's room. You know, you'd be talking about some of the darkest stuff. I mean, you know, the ways you're killing people and trying to think of all this stuff, but then you would just say one thing that would all make you laugh and you you knew you could bring it back in a second. So it's it's having fun with those moments as well. Well, speaking of fine lines, I think there are probably a lot of viewers, and I'm sure there are also a bunch of writers who, if they had their druthers, would make the show basically one scene after another with Jodie and, uh, and Sandra. And, and mm -hmm. you know, you would just be putting them together constantly. But clearly that's something you can't do because the minute they're together for like five episodes in a row, everyone goes, well, okay, this is stupid and doesn't work and isn't realistic anymore. How do you walk that line of putting them together as much as you'd want to, but also recognizing that you can't do that? I think that is a dilemma with any will they, won't they. I, I think that every, every will they, won't they show in the history of television has had this issue in its own way. And, you know, it's trying to keep that tension and, and finding inventive ways. And so for me, I, it was again all about character and, and, and plot and what had happened to them, trying to root it in that rather than trying to come up with what felt like artificial ways of keeping them apart. It was actually, you know, and initially I had season two in my favour because, you know, Eve is obviously so wounded and she's dealing with herself and she feels that that world of Villanelle is too dangerous. And Villanelle thinks that Eve is dead. So we could use that to our advantage initially, certainly. But yeah, it, it's that's always a tough conundrum. And, and for me, it was really... And also, I think what happens at the end of episode one, it then puts Eve in a certain way, you know, the, the story, while, of course, the beating heart of the show is those two women, uh, something has happened to someone very dear to her. And th that becomes a genuine focus and an understandable focus for her. Uh, so, you know, it, it's it's working around it. But, yeah, it, it's, um, I, you know, I can't lie. It's always tricky, that stuff. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's, 
it's a conundrum that I am excited about some of the ways we found to solve it. But yeah, we spent a long time in the writer's room. You know, it's like a puzzle. You're putting the pieces together and you're just trying to figure out the best way to do it. You know, given the, you know, the continuity where you continue to to hand off each each season, I, you know, I wonder, you know, as we speak so much about Sandra and Jody, considering that they're at the top of the call sheet, what kind of feedback do they have? Are, are they, you know, a little bit more involved in saying, oh, the, what about this instead? Or I don't know about this. Like, you know, can you talk a little bit about how that works with the showrunner handoffs? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, you know... <laughs> Not to bring this back to me, but in my very, very original life, I was an actor. I trained classically as an actor in London and I was an actor in the theatre for about five years before I started writing. And so my background is acting and I love actors. And as a playwright, I work really, I kind of write for actors, really. So um, I love the relationship with actors and it's one that's always very important to me and part of my process as a writer. And I wanted to have a very open dialogue with Sandra and Jodie and actually Fiona and Kim as well. I mean, you know, with all of them, I was very fortunate to have a good relationship with them all. You know, Sandra and I would talk she at length. We would have very long conversations about all the episodes and... and uh, I found that invaluable, actually, because, again, the actors have... They've lived in these characters' skins you know, they know these characters better than anyone at this point. So there's an instinct that they have with the characters that you can really use as a fantastic resource. And similarly, Jodie, you know, she has such great instincts and she would often pitch something that would be very funny or like very odd twists that Villanelle could do in a moment that, that wouldn't have occurred to me that was an excellent addition. She would be brilliant at going through the scenes and saying, well, what if she does this or what if she does that? You know, just, just fantastic little flourishes. So, yeah, I would, uh, I encouraged it and it was something we did for all the episodes because, again, I just think you know, it can only help add nuance and colour to the characters to have that input. I love that. Um, you know, wrapping up here, we always like to end our interviews with the same question. It feels even more appropriate given uh, the quarantine situation we're all in. But what are you watching right now and loving? Yeah, it's so interesting because I, I go like on and off TV, you know, I, I'll, I'll do like mass binging and then I'll kind of like I... I, I Sometimes when I'm in the thick of writing, it's too many uh, too many other voices I'm hearing. But right now, I've just started. I mean, I watched Tiger King. I feel like the rest of the world did. <laughs> Not me. Nope. Hard pass. Oh, no, I Hard know, pass. I, know. I can't it's, do it. It's such a. The, it was just. Yeah. It, it, it was an odd, <laughs> intense experience. That's all I can say. Drama wise. Actually, there's some British stuff. I'm in London. I can't get back to America. So I'm quarantined in London. So it's like, I can't watch a load of American TV right now. Uh, there's a, a playwright, James Graham, wrote um, a TV show called Queers about this guy who um, who tried to cheat on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. So, you know, I've just started watching that. That's been a, a huge show here. And I'm trying to think what I just... Yeah, I'm just starting Deadwood, which I've never done. <laughs> and it feels like a great one to binge right now. I was like, I'm going to binge the shows that I never got around to seeing. And um, a great friend of mine, Jamie O'Brien, who I worked on Fear the Walking Dead with, she was a, always like hailed Deadwood. It's like one of the great, great shows. So yeah, I I'm just starting on that. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast today, Suzanne. We appreciate it. Oh, no, thank you. It was such a pleasure. Thanks, Suzanne. Killing Eve airs Sunday nights on BBC America and AMC. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. 
This week's new launches include Black AF, the show in which Kenya Barris plays a version of himself on Netflix. The streamer also debuts Too Hot to Handle, and ESPN has Michael Jordan docuseries The Last Dance. Dan, what you got? I, I definitely want to go back to the segment where I listed ludicrous Fox reality premises. And as I said, Forever Eden was the tawdry version of Paradise Hotel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Too Hot to Handle on Netflix is the tawdry version of Forever Eden. Or maybe it's not. Maybe it's actually the wholesome and uh, and genteel version of Forever Eden, because the premise of the show is that a bunch of really, really horny singles are taken to the most generic island resort in the entire world. And within seconds, they're all plotting opportunities to go knock boots in various different corners. And then the artificial intelligence device... Uh, in the centerpiece tells them that they are allowed to do nothing physical. They are not allowed to partake in any sexual activity, either with each other or with themselves. And if they are able to do that, they will get to split a not really all that impressive prize. I think it's like $100,000 for all of them, which is really not worth it. Um, it is unquestionably trashy escapist TV, and I would say that probably people are going to be in the, mu the mood for that kind of trashy escapist TV. Uh, the quote-unquote characters on the show are of very particular archetypes. There is literally an Essex girl who fulfills all imaginable stereotypes for Essex girls, if you happen to know about such things, but they are all horny and without particular restraint, and the game is to watch them attempt to show some restraint. So some people will get a kick out of that. It is not particularly high-quality television, but on the other hand, it is unquestionably trashy fun. If you want something unscripted that's actually of significantly higher quality, uh, I really enjoyed The Last Dance. I, I find it hard to talk about it without comparing it to OJ Made in America, and that's just unavoidable, but it is the new... ESPN documentary series, which will air on Netflix internationally, about the last year of the Michael Jordan Bulls dynasty, the 1997-1998 season. But it also covers Jordan's entire career. There are. Does it include his time with the Chicago White Sox, Dan? Of course, it includes his time. Well, not really with the Chicago White Sox, but it well, includes their minor league affiliate. The Barons. It include it definitely includes his time with the Birmingham Barons uh, playing Double A baseball, and that is well and truly covered in depth. Uh, Terry Francona is among the interview subjects, uh, so that is covered. His time uh, playing basketball with the Looney Tunes against various evil marauding aliens is also covered, and. Basically, his entire career and all of the Michael Jordan brand is covered. There are segments that are giving biographical details on players, including Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman, Phil Jackson. All of these people appear as talking heads in the documentary. There are a number of interviews with Michael Jordan that are cobbled together throughout. Uh, he is not the most candid and forthcoming of interview subjects, but he is asked most of the questions you would probably want to ask Michael Jordan about both his actual career and various ensuing scandals around it. And his answers are, for the most part, what you would expect them to be. But anyway, it is a it is a very lengthy documentary project. But thanks to the amount of space that it covers, it is mostly worth the time. There's a lot of wonderful basketball footage. Sometimes I feel like I wanted it to dig a little bit deeper 
on what his economic and socioeconomic impact was on the city of Chicago and on basketball, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe the last couple episodes will cover that more. But we are in a moment where people are unquestionably hungry for sports-related programming. I, I watched about 15 minutes of ESPN airing a horse competition last week. Uh, it, it was not very good. It was, in fact, bordering on genuinely sad. But this is actually a really good piece of sports programming, should people want that. And then I guess the last of the shows that you mentioned was uh, Hashtag Black AF from Kenya Burris, uh, Barris, rather, and it is... It's basically his Curb Your Enthusiasm. It, it's basically it's him actually playing himself with a background commentary on Blackish, which is a show that was also semi-autobiographical. So it's all about the different layers of reality and scripted autobiography. And he is not at all ashamed to make himself look fairly horrible to look like a not great husband, to look like a not great father, etc. And, you know, he's not an actor, but there are people in the cast who are actors. Rashida Jones plays his wife here, and she is terrific. It's still, it's kind of, this is Blackish if Blackish didn't have whatever the limitations are that ABC puts on Blackish. So, you know, there's some swearing. There's also, I would say it is a significantly angrier and more frustrated show than Blackish, which usually tends towards the heartwarming by the end of episodes. The fifth episode in particular, which I, I hear may actually be sixth in the thing, you'll know in your Netflix listings because it's the one that's 48 freaking minutes long. It is a really great episode featuring a lot of cameos by Tyler Perry and a bunch of the most powerful uh, African-American showrunners, producers, directors in Hollywood talking about issues of representation and self-critique. And it's a it's a really good, really smart episode of TV. And, and there there are things to like throughout. But I would say that overall, my review of hashtag Black AF would be positive with reservations, but there is the one really great episode that I, I hope people will find a way to talk about because it is a, a really good, really important episode of TV with a lot of cameos that are a lot of fun. So yeah, that's that's a wide range of viewing options for the next week. Uh, once again, TV continues to give us things to do in these challenging times. Yes. And for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. You can find the link to subscribe on THR.com by clicking on the newsletters tab. This feels, of course, like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll have one, maybe two showrunner spotlights for you, uh, including possibly something with someone we just talked about. Um, yeah. We're, we're booking things. Let's just say that. We're, we're just trying to stay afloat. We're doing the yeah. best we can. Uh, so until then, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. We're always around on Twitter and happy to hear from you. Questions, comments, concerns, etc. But if you have any real questions... We're probably going to have to go back to mailbag either next week or the week after because, you know, news is slow. So you can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. 
Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Stay safe, support journalism, and contact us if you would like to hire some great, great colleagues. Thank you. 